If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Zen is America's number one nicotine pouch. It's made with only six simple ingredients. Plus, Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day hassle-free trial. There are lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zen.com slash find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Holiday listeners, welcome to a very special holiday edition of Off the Beat. Tis the season. I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. Today, we're going to do things a little bit differently because I don't know if you've noticed, but it's almost January already, which means it's almost 2023, which means that I am just this close to making an entire trip around the sun with off the beat. Now, I have to tell you all, this blows my mind. Week after week, I have gotten to talk to some of the most incredible people from some of my absolute favorite film and TV shows. And you all, you're out there listening. You have made this all possible. I cannot, I truly could not be more grateful for each and every one of you uh, for coming on this journey with me. I am having a blast. I hope you continue to have a blast as well. So my special gift to you, we put together a couple of best of episodes for Off the Beat featuring just a very small sampling of the hilarious, emotional, and inspirational, if I do say so myself, interviews that I've put on this year. This is by no means 
a comprehensive list. There are some truly fan freaking tastic guests you're not going to be hearing from, but uh, tis the season for reflection, for looking back and looking forward. So we're going to do just that. Starting with some of my very first guests and one in particular who I had happened to cross paths with on a boat. Well, maybe more of a booze cruise while filming The Office. So here he is, my good friend, Rob Riggle, with the story of what it was like to play the iconic Captain Jack. Of course, I can't not mention Captain Jack, uh, your role (laughs) on The Office, coming out to film what was, without a doubt, the most difficult film we that we had in 10 years. There's no question. There's no question <laughs> working from 7 p.m. to like 7 a.m. out on oh the water. Gosh. It was, it was. Were you aware of the office when you got that job? What was oh, your awareness? Oh my gosh, yeah. Okay. So I, w- I was very aware of the BBC version. While I was on SNL, uh, you know, we're on, uh, the writers are on 17 and the studio's down on eight. And on 16, they have a casting directors and stuff. I actually auditioned for Michael Scott. I knew this. Yes. And I auditioned for Dwight and Keckner's role. Packer. Uh, I forget his name. Packer. They made the right choice, obviously. Uh, but I was fresh <laughs> in their minds because I think I did the episode that I did, the booze cruise, before I got uh, the Daily the Show, Daily so Show. that gap between SNL and when I got the Daily Show, okay, that's when I got the Office role, which I was so happy to get and so honored. And for me, it was super cool because one, I love the show. It was your guys' second season, I think. That's right. The show's a hit. Everybody knows it. Everybody's loving it. And I was one of them. I was like more and more, and I get to be part of it, which was great. But I'm still so green. As an actor and as a performer, being on camera still made me nervous. I'm nervous as hell. And when we got out on the water, remember when we floated out, they okay, between between setups, normally everybody goes back to the trailer, they go back to crafty, kind of everybody separates against their space. There was nowhere to go on that boat. When they'd say, Okay, we're setting up for it, moving on. It's time for a new shot. They'd go to set up. We all just go sit on the dance floor or sit in those booths. Those booths. And hang out. Yeah, those booths. And I remember thinking. This is awesome. I just remember enjoying the hell out of it and not even dawning on me that we were dust till dawn. Right. Um, and it was draining. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Corell was shooting Evan Almighty and he would literally leave. We'd pull back to the, to the dock. He would get out, get in a sedan and drive to film all day. And I remember thinking, when's this guy getting his sleep? This is insane. <laughs> Yeah. And and yet his performance on the boat, and I'm sure his performance in the movie, fantastic. Yeah. But it was total fun. One thing about that episode that bums me out to this day. Okay. For whatever reason, I don't know, maybe it was the devil, maybe evil demon angel. Somebody would not let me get the words wall and paw pack out of my mouth. <laughs> That's right. I couldn't yeah. say it. Wall and paw pack. I couldn't say it. That's right. We were supposed to be on Lake Wall and Paw Pack. I can say it now right. as if it's nothing. I can say it. With ease, that night, <laughs> I, I maybe got it out once or twice correctly, and the rest I just couldn't do it. And I remember they were looking at me, 
And they were baffled. They were absolutely baffled. Like, what is this guy's major malfunction? How can you not say Wall and Paul Pack? And I, I can't explain it. It's just one of those moments where you're like, I'm so sorry. I wanted to die. I wanted to go crawl. I wanted to dive off that boat and die. Well, first of all, everyone has been there. I have not thought about that in 15 years. And you and I see each other. I don't know, 10 times a year at various things. I have not ever once thought of that moment until right now. And the second you said it, I was like, oh, that's right. He couldn't say it. I couldn't say it. I couldn't say it right. And I know it was so simple. And they were were looking at me go, wall and paw pack. I go, well, let's just wall and wall, wall, paw pack, wall, paw pack. I mean, really, there was some synapsis in my brain that would not connect it. And you know, you know, Brian, as, as an actor, the drive home, oh, I said yeah. every line perfectly. Oh, I said every word sure. perfectly. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't have been more spot on the drive home. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. That is, yeah. oh, that is amazing. Do you get recognized? Do people yell Captain Jack at you? Every now and then, yes. Okay. Yes, they do. Okay. I was probably... No joke, probably 40, 50 pounds heavier than right. so uh I looked a little different then. Um, yeah, interesting. That episode, by the way, it was was shared with me or reminded by Kevin Riley, actually, who was the head of NBC at the time, that he would call about the ratings after every night. And obviously the office became a big show for him and he kind of staked his reputation on it. And after Booze Cruise, the office didn't just retain the number from my name is Earl, which came before, but actually beat it in the ratings. And he said, he said, I may have cried. It was like (laughs) that kind of moment for him, like that episode. So significant. The only thing that brought, other than not being able to say wall and Paul pack, which still haunts me. I mean, I still feel so bad about that. I was bummed out because I knew that once my episode was over, you wouldn't see Captain Jack again. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and they're not going to bring me back as some other character. Right. Because I always wanted to be reoccurring on on The Office just because it's such an iconic, legendary show. But uh, I won't be greedy. I was very grateful for the opportunity to, to, to be Captain Jack. Well, look, I mean, during that time and just setting The Office aside, you were really on, had the opportunity to appear on every great show during that time with you know, all due respect to the ones you weren't on, but I mean, Arrested Development and 30 Rock and Modern Family and just yeah. amazing all of the shows that 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 you were on during that time and obviously recurred on a lot of them. Yeah, I, I was uh, very happy about that. Very blessed. But The Office is definitely special. Well, yes, <laughs> it is for me too. <laughs> Absolutely, it should be. Ah, yes, the great Lake Wallenpawpack or Lake Wallenpawpack. P-Pack. And that is what we call in the business a transition to my next guest, who was actually my very first guest on this podcast. She had her own special audition story that was not haunted, but perhaps helped by a certain kind of energy. Here she is with the story, Allison Hannigan, everyone. I remember my manager calling me before I read the script and he's like, okay, we're sending you the script. You're either going to love it or hate it. Nobody like, that's just how it's going. People can't stand it or they love it. So I loved it. 
And he was saying, take a look at, you know, uh, whatever role, because all the roles were open and see which one you like. Oh, I think it was actually between Heather my, and Michelle. Yeah, exactly. Heather and Michelle. Yes. And I was like, no, I love Michelle. And uh, just immediately like wanted to do that part. And so I went, I, I went to the audition. It was casting. It was just me and the casting director. And he told me, um, no, she can't be that quirky. Like take out all the, you know, all the quirk, just take that away. And cause we want, you know, we want these two to be together or whatever. And I was like, oh, Okay. I mean, it's written in question form. Every line has a question mark at the end of the sentence. And so I was like, oh, all right. Well, that's weird because that's definitely not how I pictured it. Right. So I did it again, just super boring. And he was like, okay, great. I'm going to bring you back for the directors. And that's, that's great. And I got on the phone to my manager. I was like, they said that they're going to bring me back for the directors. But honestly, I don't want to go. Because if he wants me to do it like that, I just, that's, that's not going to be funny. And right. so, so they were like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let's just see if you get the call back and, and t- talk to us then. And so I did. And the call that they took me, my managers took me to lunch right before maybe to butter me up to go to the callback. I don't know why, but we were <laughs> at lunch and I had like seven iced teas or something ridiculous. And then I sat in traffic on my way to the callback and I had to pee like I've never had to pee before. And I just remember kind of, then you have to go through, it's on the back lot of universal and trying to find the bungalow. I was going to wet my pants. And so I was like, well, I don't want to be late. I'll sign in and then run to the bathroom. So I did that. And I'm like, (sighs) I went to the bathroom, washing my hands and the assistant comes in to the bathroom and says, okay, we're ready for you. I'm like, oh, all right. What? So I never comes into the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, she, <laughs> yes. Thank God I wasn't in the stall still. So I dry my hands, but I never had time to settle down. I still had that. I'm going to wet my pants energy. And so I just went in and I never even decided if I was going to do it boring or the way I wanted to do it. And because I had that like hyper pee energy, I just did it the way I wanted to do it, and I got the job. There you go. I'm sure the casting director appreciates me telling that story. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that shows a boldness from you, whether it was intentional or not, right? So, like, it was just about the pee or whatever. But <laughs> if you did read you the script. think this morning that you would say if it was just about the pee? Sorry. It was just about the pee, just about mm-hmm. Allison Hannigan's pee. No, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, like, there are times you read something and you see it clearly. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you did. Yeah. There were multiple roles available for your choosing, at least to audition. And you saw a character and you saw the role. And they said, well, no, they want it like this. Well, that's not you, right? No. Well, I mean, it's that's not, not what I wanted to do. I really, right. like, I had so much fun just being weird and like talking in question form. It was so much fun. And then like, so to, no, 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 be, be just lose the quirk and, and just like, you know, we want that to root for them to be together. I'm like, what? Uh, but I, that didn't, I didn't see it that way. <laughs> and I'm so not normally like that either. I'm very much like, okay, what do you want? I'm your puppet, you know? So I guess that was just, no. 
this is how I would want to play it. It also helped that I was on Buffy and it wasn't like, I have to get this part. You know, it was like, hey, that'd be great. It's a small part in this movie I thought was really funny, but it wasn't like, oh, this is going to change your life. Oh, you know, you didn't know that at the time. So the stakes weren't that high and I had a job to go back to. So that gave me a confidence that I didn't normally have. And, and see, that's uh, so important too. Mm-hmm. I know. And you know that because people always say, act like you don't care about the job. But it's it, 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 you can't. Well, you have to truly not care. You have to I truly know. not care. Exactly. Well, and I'm so grateful that I had a crappy agent for Buffy because they weren't able to give me the script. So I only had the sides. And had I read the script, I would have completely lost my mind and I wouldn't have I, there's no way I could have gotten it because I would would have wanted it so desperately. So I'm I'm really glad that when I got the script, I was like, oh, I won the lottery. That you did, Allison. That you did. But you're not the only one who had a less than ideal audition end up changing your life. Here's my next guest, my old friend Eric Stone Street, with what could only be described as an aggressive casting experience the producer in chicago that had helped me get my sag card by doing three backgrounds she's like when i was moving she said oh i have a friend um that is a casting associate for somebody in la and i'll give you her name that was the only professional name i came to town with and she was nice enough to accept my headshot and she's like yeah we'll call you in you know if something comes up we'll, we'll give you a call and she called me in and it took me you know maybe four or five times of going in for i can't think of his name biggest producer in town tv wise uh big bang theory uh laurie chuck laurie yeah chuck laurie it took me like four or five times going in and getting called back and finally i got a little part on Darman and greg and that was really the beginning but i didn't you know know anybody but again it all comes down to people just being nice and like giving you a shot right i think for me a big lesson you learn is how important just like the number of jobs you get regardless of what they are, right? So there's like commercials and there's this show and that show and you start to build a career. I know you did a, a lot of commercials. I hear over a hundred commercials you did after arriving yeah. in Los Angeles. Well, I did a national campaign in, in Chicago for the NCA where I played this character named Joe Football where I was painted red and blue. And then that helped me get a commercial agent in LA. and then. I was lucky enough one day to meet a guy named Joe Pitka. Okay. And Joe Pitka is a legendary commercial director in Los Angeles. And I went in and I auditioned for an American Express Tiger Woods commercial where the ball's traveling all over the world. And I was just a guy on a tee box somewhere and the ball lands and I smashed the ball. So I go into this audition and when it, before I went in, my agent called me and was like, you're auditioning for Joe Pitka. I'm like, Okay, what, what what does that mean? She's like, you don't know who Joe Pitka is? I'm like, no, what do I need to do right now? Do I need to pull over? What's happening? She's like, no, he's very intimidating. He's very scary. You know, he's very loyal. Just be cool. Be calm. Don't poke the bear. I'm like, what the hell? So I go in and I audition for this Tiger Woods commercial where it's like, I don't even think I have lines. He just was like looking me up and down at my body. Maybe he had me go swing the golf, like a golf club or something. 
and I'm standing there and he's just staring at me like literally like a lion about to pounce on a pound of meat. He goes, where are you from? And I said, uh, I'm from Kansas city. It was Kansas city. I said, uh, yeah, where are you from? And he goes, Pittsburgh. And I said, Pittsburgh. He goes, yeah, you got a problem with Pittsburgh? And I said, well, no, but it seems like you have a problem with Kansas city. He's got to have a problem with Kansas city. Why do you think I have a problem with Kansas city? And I said, well, because I said where I was from and you were like judgmental about it. Because I wasn't judgmental about it. He goes, what's your problem? And I go, well, I don't have a problem. And I'm like, oh my God, it's happening. Like she warned me that this could happen. And I've just been, I'm engaged. Now I'm in an argument with the guy who like is maybe hiring me. So he's like, get the fuck out of here. And like literally said it like that. And I'm like, I leave and I'm like, I call her. And I said, well, I guess I screwed that moment up. I guess I didn't heed your warning. She's like, what happened? I said, well, we got into an argument about where I was from. Like, she's like, what did you do? What did you do? He said, I didn't do anything. I just answered his question. Well, long story short, uh, like a day later, she calls me and she's like, you are not going to believe this. And I said, what? She said, you are not getting that American Express commercial. And I said, well, yeah, clearly. She goes, but Joe Pitka had his casting director call back and say he can't wait to work with you on something. And I was like, so confused. And then a month later, I get a phone call. It says, show up in the Long Beach Harbor. You're in an IBM commercial with Joe Pitka. And that was the beginning of our, our run. Wow. Incredible. That is unbelievable. How many did you end up doing with him? This is going to sound so ridiculous, what I'm about to say. But it's like a couple campaigns. But it was like almost 60. And he would just call. And listen, I have talked about him when I've been asked you know, for comments about acting and things like that. I just had dinner with him a month ago here in Los Angeles and he doesn't like to hear this because he's this guy, you know, he's Polish from Pittsburgh. He's stubborn and he's bullheaded and he's, you know, he is, he, him. But I'm like, Joe, you have to acknowledge my appreciation and my thankfulness to you because you taught me so much about like working under pressure. You taught me so much about like, being prepared. You taught me, taught me so much about being patient and like confident in your abilities. And like you, but more than anything, you gave me the ability to go into these theatrical auditions with the confidence that I had somebody outside of this room that's going to hire me for something. And like, you don't know what that means to an actor to know that like, I'm not walking in with desperation on my brow. It's like, fuck you. Like, no, I'm serious. You need to know that you mean a tremendous amount to my career and that I wouldn't be where I ended up being without you. And that's all I'm going to say about it. That's amazing. Yeah. Good. He's a good guy. I just figured out his shtick, man. I mean, he, he is tough, but he just appreciated that I, in that room, that first moment that I engaged him and that I wasn't like whimpering. And that was his test. His test was like, well, can you work with me on set when there's 10 hours of time we've wasted and we've got to get the shot in one minute. Can you be that person? And that's what he kind of puts people through. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen nicotine pouches, you can find many. Not only did Zen create the first ever nicotine pouch, we're still America's number one choice for smoke-free, spit-free nicotine satisfaction. 
It could be because Zen is made with only six simple ingredients, including naturally derived nicotine salt. Or maybe it's because Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day trial. For anyone worried Zen won't cut it like traditional tobacco, just ask one of the millions of people who have achieved lasting change. You have lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zin. Find your Zin online or in a store near you at zin.com slash find. That's zyn.com slash find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. My next guest found herself with an incredible opportunity to take a leading role on what would eventually become a true cult classic, Freaks and Geeks. But if the stars had aligned differently, she would have listened to all of the people telling her to pass. I'm happy to say that she had her own motivations because otherwise she may not have been so busy these last few decades. Okay, that was bad. That was that was bad. I'm blaming that on the writers. Here she is, Busy Phillips, everyone. I went to pick up, I think, Colin at the airport. And Linda was also there picking up her roommate, actually. And she had just gotten the part. And she knew that they had they wanted me for Kim Kelly. And she was like, dude, can you believe it? I'm I got freaks and geeks. I'm gonna do it. You gotta be Kim Kelly. And I was like, I know. I was just talking. I just it's so exciting. Like I just, my agents are feeling like, I don't know. And she's like, no, 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 do this show. You got to do this with me. It'll be so much fun. We'll have so much fun. And I honestly, in that moment, I was like, yeah, of course I'm fucking doing it. Like, why would I not do, I already know this girl who's rad and like, I want to be best friends with anyway. Why would I not do this? And so I called my manager, Lorraine, and I was like, I really want to do this. And she's like, I'm going to call Judge. I'm going to find out what the deal is. And then she called me back and she was like, 
you know, Judd is really insistent that they want to make this character a series regular if the show gets picked up. I think you should just do it. I think it's brilliant. And so because of like Lorraine, my manager at the time, and Linda Cardellini, I was like, I had no idea what I was doing. Who knows what anything is, you know? Right. So you, They're like, had, Judd Apatow had, from Sick in the Head. I'm sure. like, I don't know what the fuck that is. Like, <laughs> right. I'm 19. No, of right, of course. Had you read the script? Yeah. You have. I did not but understand you, it at all. I'm not going to okay. lie. I'm not going to lie. I totally, Brian, totally, I was like, don't get it. I don't get what the tone of this is. I was so confused by it. And then I remember they cut together. We had a pretty long shoot for the pilot. I mean, it's a right. period piece and it's involved. And those were the, those were the olden days of Hollywood where right. they really spent a ton of money and like, they were right. shooting on film, you know? Right. <laughs> and after we wrapped the pilot that evening in the cafeteria of the school we were shooting at, they rolled out like a little AV cart and they had cut together. The editors had just put together like a tiny little mishmash of the show for uh, all of us to see what we'd been working on, which honestly, also in retrospect, is so special because so frequently. That is so cool. Yeah, the, I mean, if your show doesn't get picked up, the crew literally never sees the show. Right. I mean, I don't know about you. I've done pilots that I still haven't seen. Right, right. I've, you know, I've done shows that I've never seen, but that's a different issue. That is I, a different issue, I would say. But anyway, it was so special. And I remember watching this thing that they put together and they had the Come Sail Away song, you know, like crescendoing. And I got full chills and I was like, this is what we've been doing. Oh <laughs> my God. This is real. Like, right. My, my, I'm going to start crying, but like my little brain was blown. Like, this is what I've wanted right. to do since I was a baby. And there I am. And I don't even look like me and I don't sound like me. And it's real. Yeah. That was that. Wow. Were you aware at that moment? that the show was special or doing something new or did your little brain not comprehend that at the, at the time? I mean, that whole experience is so has had so many different incarnations of what it was and what it is and what it continues to be. So mm -hmm. it's funny, you know, like we had such an amazing time while we were doing it and the freedom that Judd and Paul and, Leslie Gladder, like all of our directors, they gave us such a gift that we were all way too inexperienced and young to understand at the mm. in the moment, I think. But we all enjoyed it very much. I mean, I don't remember, aside from like my personality conflict with Franco, like I don't remember ever having like a complaint about anything having to do with it. Late nights were super fun. Early mornings were super fun. We would hang out. We would go to swingers and get food at midnight after we wrapped. Like, together, we would go to Birds on Franklin. Sure. Where Siegel convinced me that the Scientology building had a Tower of Terror ride inside of it. <laughs> and I believed him for, like, 10 minutes. <laughs> I really thought it was true. And Seth was like, come on. It's not true. And I was like, I don't know. It looks like it has one of those rides in it, you know, like a drop. I was like, what? We don't know. 
Uh, anyway, um, wow. so it was really fun, you know, and I think and when the show was over and it became clear, like that it was going to be over, over, I wasn't ready for it to be and I wanted it to continue. I was really, really sad and really disheartened. And 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 I did feel in that moment already like, but we made something so good. Right. Why is this? Ha- why is this fair? I mean, and again, that's the best lesson you can learn as an actor. <laughs> it's like right. it actually doesn't matter, babe. <laughs> <laughs> right. Paul said it was ahead of its time a little bit. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the cringe comedy, I mean, you know, Judd's now made a career out of very similar toned things it launched so many careers and and really pioneered a a new way of doing television that is uh you know i think a lot of shows including the office owe a great debt of gratitude to um yeah i remember feeling that it was ahead of its time like i said like i read it and didn't understand it Right. <laughs> you know, right. I didn't understand tonally what it was supposed to be. It wasn't until I actually saw it that I was like, oh, shit, this right. is awesome. And I think it's really a testament to how the people in charge treated us with so much respect. And we were kids and maybe at moments didn't deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> They really treated us like experts in our field and real collaborators in making this thing. And it changes everything when you get to work with people who respect you. Yeah. I've been on both sides of that like line uh, where I've worked for people who just definitely don't respect me. And right. I'm there to like service what they want to be done or how they want it said. And I have no joke heard actors like that I was working with being referenced as talking props. Yeah. Whew, that's a bummer. Yeah. You know, that's that like really takes the fun out of it. But like for me to go from doing really fun, creative theater programs and then getting to be a part of a show, a network television show where these adults in charge. And by the way, that is the funniest thing to me, which is that I thought that Judd and Leslie were literally 50 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Leslie is like three years older than me. (laughs) We're like essentially the same age. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But she was like, they were like married. They had a baby. They were like old people. And And then, like, cut to five years later, we're, like, hanging out with each other in Hawaii. And I'm like, wait, what's happening? We're the same. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God is right. That is hilarious. Busy. Uh, Speaking of working with people when they're young and then running into them again as adults, one of my next guests started out with a, a pretty surprising role on The Office. And then he went on to be on a tiny little show called Glee with his friend, Jenna. Here they are, Kevin McHale and Jenna Oskowitz. Kevin, I actually met you before Jenna. You mm-hmm. were a very significant guest star on The Office when you were 17-ish yeah. years of age. 
how was that experience for you? Uh, the delivery boy, I believe yeah. was your title pizza delivery yeah. boy <laughs> from Alfredo's. What was that experience like for you? And how much experience did you have at that time in film and television? It sounds like not a lot, not a lot. It was, I think my second guest star thing wow. ever. The other one was Zoe one one on Nickelodeon. Wow. And yeah, it was a really, really big thing. For me, the audition process was unlike anything I'd ever experienced where the callbacks, we were in the room with Steve and he came in and read with us. Oh, wow. You know, Steve Carell. I just say Steve. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was dying. I was so terrified. Uh, Really? Were you now were you a fan of the show? Oh, yeah. I was. And I was a fan of the the UK UK version. Like I was all about it. And Allison Jones, the casting director is probably the only reason why I've had any sort of career. Because (laughs) she, when no one else did, kept giving me chances on everything. I got really close and super bad. Uh And then she just, you know, as if you get on TV and you you become semi-recognizable, you get to skip a couple rounds of auditioning and you just get brought into the later rounds. I didn't have any reason to get brought into automatically to later rounds for things. She just started doing that for me. Because mm. somehow she believed in me and it, I really took that to heart and made me feel better when I would go into these rooms that she would bring me into. But yeah, I went in and auditioned with Steve and got it and I screamed and was freaking out. And then all of you were just so, so awful. No, so <laughs> nice. Um, I knew you were going to say that. I, I mean, I was... I was so intimidated, obviously, coming in there. It's like, these are these professional adults, and they're all talented and funny. And I felt like, you know, severe case of imposter syndrome. And everyone went out of their way to make me feel comfortable, to make me feel like I deserved to be there, every one of you. And um, it was just really, really great. And also, what a great gig you guys had. Because, I mean, Jenna, those sets were pre-lit. Oh like, my God. oh my, the way they could set up something so quickly, they, they were on their door. own, they had their own stage. Oh God, it was the dream. Yeah. So you ruined it for anything else because. <laughs> I feel like you also got recognized, still. Oh, I get, get recognized, recognized from the office so often from that one episode and it's, it's absolute, I don't know how you go anywhere because I was in one episode and. You still do. I can't, by the way, but you still do. <laughs> oh Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. That's a lot crazy because I went back and looked at those pictures and you do look quite different. Yeah. I mean, you are older. Let's be clear. Yeah. So am I, I guess. That's how time works. (laughs) I'll explain it to you later. Wow. Well, that is very, very interesting. Uh, Yeah. I wouldn't, I don't know that I would have thought that with with everything that's come after. Still. (laughs) So, you guys, to say the least, you have a very, Diverse training and backgrounds. Talk to me about Glee. How did the opportunities <laughs> come up for both of you? Um, were these just auditions first off? Yes. Yeah. Regular just auditions. auditions. Yes. Yep. Okay. And what did you have to do? Obviously, did you have to dance as well as sing as well you as think. act? You, you did not. No. Yeah. And they realized that was probably a mistake later on. I had to bring in some people <laughs> who could dance. 
Yeah. They're like, nobody can dance? Yeah, not one. <laughs> not even everybody can sing. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, no was in the spring, I was in Spring Awakening at the time. And it was the same casting director, Jim Carnahan, in New York, who cast Spring Awakening, was also casting the New York side of Glee. And so... We had it. It was all a buzz in the theater, and they were like, "Oh, there's this new musical theater TV show that's coming out," and everybody got brought in for it because right. the pilot also was like some of these characters, like Artie and Tina, were pretty nonspecific, and so I went in and. Um, everybody went in and we didn't have to sing for our first audition because they were like, I guess you're on Broadway. I guess you can sing. So I didn't have to sing in my first call. Um, I just oh, went on fair. tape. And just read li- just read lines like any other show. Yeah, yeah. And literally Tina's only line was a stutter. And she said, uh, 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 and that's it. That was my entire audition, first audition. Oh, God. That's all you did? They didn't yes. give you anything else? Nope. I don't even Stop think I knew it. that. Mm-hmm. That's it? <laughs> that was it. Wow. Well, I'm not going to say anything but, bad, but that they got to be more creative than that. This is yeah. poor people. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally by a weird stutter on one day, your entire life could be changed. Yeah. Sliding truly. doors. Check out the movie. <laughs> so Kevin, what about you? Well, now you're in a boy band. That's right. Does that mean that they <laughs> knew that you could sing or did you have to sing? They sure did not know I could sing. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we had to sing. You'd prepare a song. I read the script before. I remember I brought two friends with me. I was like, oh, this show shoots in New York. I don't know why I thought that. Um, really? Yeah, I don't know why. I was, I had it probably mixed up with something else. Mm. And I went in and auditioned. And it wasn't an audition room. It was in Robert Ulrich who casted it. It was like in his office. And I just sat on the other side of the desk from him. And it was one of those what? places where the walls are really thin. So you can hear what everybody is doing. Ulrich, Dawson, everybody, and Kritzer. Is this what yep. you're talking uh-huh. about? Yep. Yeah. Oh my God, those walls are really thin. They're okay, paper keep going. Thin. And so <laughs> so awkward. Yeah. That's it's what a, it's casting awkward directors... on a good day when there's no yes. singing. Yeah. Right. Oh, with singing. Brutal. I would die. Yeah. And that's, death. and that's how I felt because I one have terrible nerves auditioning, hate auditioning, <laughs> and then having to sing. Like the first thing to like go when you get nervous is your voice. Your voice. Like your vocal cords just freeze up. And then you can hear what everybody's doing. It's just so <laughs> embarrassing, mortifying. Oh so God. I went in there, I sang "Let It Be." I never I, heard of it. Let it be. It's a new I'm song. Kidding. These indie okay. artists. Um, <laughs> I intentionally only prepared like a verse and a chorus because the song is so slow. So I was like, I'm not going to bore them to death. Let me just Let me do this. <laughs> then I get to the end of the chorus, and Robert goes, "Like, keep going." <laughs> I'm like, I'm a fake fan. I don't know the second verse of this. Oh, no. And so I I don't know what I did. I think I sort of stumbled through singing this first verse again and then went into the chorus again because I knew that. Wow. Um, And then I did the scenes. And then immediately, which also never happens, he's like, okay, so when you come back and start talking about the next audition, I was like, what? That's nice. Okay, great. (laughs) <laughs> and then I went back two days later to Ryan's office at Paramount, and it w- it went from being at Robert's desk to a boardroom. <laughs> basically, it was a full table of fifteen people, right? It, you know, in this gigantic room. Brad Ellis, who ended up being on the show and playing the piano, he was there. We went early to practice our songs with him, and I prepared two songs this time. Ended up still doing "Let It Be." 
And yeah, it was a full. Cre- <laughs> I learned pre- the words. Did you? Yeah, I was like, prepared I this time. The second verse. Okay. Yeah, I. <laughs> it, it, and again, I was so. It wasn't that I was. Just, I don't think I was good at playing the character. I was just so nervous that that's what Artie became. Because that I did the song, amazing. the nerves were Artie, and then I literally ran out of the room, and that was. It. Like, I think wow. Ian Brennan, who's one of the creators of the show later, he told me, he was like, yeah, we knew from that immediately we wanted you. But I had to wait seven weeks to test because they hadn't found anybody else yet. Oh, my God. Wow. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Not only did Zen create the first ever nicotine pouch, we're still America's number one choice for smoke-free, spit-free nicotine satisfaction. It could be because Zen is made with only six simple ingredients, including naturally derived nicotine salt. Or maybe it's because Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day trial. For anyone worried Zen won't cut it like traditional tobacco, just ask one of the millions of people who have achieved lasting change. You have lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zin. Find your Zin online or in a store near you at zincom find. That's zyn.com find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. All right, folks, my next guest comes from one of my absolute all-time favorite shows, as you know, The Sopranos. So I, of course, very excited to have her on. But before we go into her interview, I want you to consider this incredibly difficult dilemma. If you were being offered a role on The Sopranos, 
but your grandma was making chicken cutlets that weren't quite ready, would you go to your audition or would you wait for the food? I guess that you'll just have to wait and see what she chose. Here's Drea DiMatteo on what it was like rolling up for her audition. I wore no makeup with my hair in a bun and pulled back, slicked back, you know, because they say just be a, a blank canvas for them. And I said, sure. And I show up like that. And now they want me to play the saucy, you know, what would be a queen's girl. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I know how to do that. But I'm not prepared because I don't have the hair or the makeup. And I can't put on that accent without it. And I didn't get the part. I, put, I auditioned for Michael's girlfriend and I couldn't, I didn't get the part. But he lied to me and he made me read for every other side character. I read for the Russian girls. I read for... Um, Oh God, I can't remember. There were like four roles that I read for in that script and I got none of them. And then they finally called my agent at that time and said, she seems like a snooty Connecticut girl. Would she be okay playing um, the hostess in the restaurant who turns down Lorraine Bracco? And I was like, you have me at Lorraine Bracco, I'll be there. And I couldn't say my lines because I was so nervous. I was with Karen. Karen from fucking Goodfellas. I couldn't <laughs> sing my lines at all. I was dying. It was her. It was she and Jim. And I didn't know Jim and nobody knew Jim yet, really. Right. Um, so I didn't care about him, but I, I definitely cared about her. And I couldn't say any of my lines. And then a year later, they would call me back to play Michael's girlfriend again, his date, just a date. I'm like, why are they calling me back? I messed up. I don't think they knew that I was the same girl. I don't think they knew. I, maybe they did. I don't even know. I don't know if I ever even asked that question. But according to Eileen, one of the producers, I got the part as his girl. It was a day player role. And another day player part on the show. Right. Because of the way I said the word Al. I had one line. It was Al. And she said I turned it into a 10-syllable word. Because <laughs> I had no idea. My mom told me to say it that way. I was at really? my mom's house when they yeah, I was at my mom's house when they called um, to come in the second time. And I said, hey, mom, it's that show. It's that Sopranos show that I told you about that I had given her the pilot to read. She goes, Dre, this is gold. She's like, this is the most unbelievable script I've ever read in TV. It's, it read like one of her scripts. Right. Um, she, and I looked at her and I said, yeah, it'll probably never get made. She said, probably not. It's too good. And that was that. And then a year later, they called me at their house. and said, hey, can you come in for an audition? I said, no, I can't. Actually, I'm in Queens. And they said, that's funny. So are we. Can you be here in a half hour? And I was like, I looked at my mom and I go, how quick are those chicken cutlets going to be done? <laughs> my grandma's making chicken cutlets. My grandmother goes, come on, make a chicken cutlet sandwich. Just get in the car and go. My mother goes, I'm going to get your nameplate and diamonds out of the safe. You need to wear it because I had this Andrea in diamonds on a rope chain from my confirmation. She goes, you're going to wear that. You go tease your hair, go put makeup on and talk like Silvana, my neighbor. And I was like, okay, let's go. And then I went with my parents in the car. They were waiting for me in the car. I ran into silver cup studios, which was in Queens. Yeah. And I gave my audition and I came back out and I ate my chicken cutlet sandwich. <laughs> and then I got, <laughs> I got a fucking part. And it was just for one line though. You know, I still have my checks from, from those, my $500 checks wow. from my first um, day player role sitting on my, I remember sitting in my in the honey wagon. I know a lot of people don't know what a honey wagon is, but the honey wagon is the trailer you see when all the trailers are parked that have 
the tiniest little rooms ever. So you know, like the main actors are not in the honey wagon. They're little <laughs> toilets. There are rooms with toilets with a pillow on the toilet so you can sit on your toilet while you're waiting to be called up. That's, That's right. a honey wagon. So I would be sitting on my in my honey wagon, sitting on the toilet every time I got a script because they kept bringing me back, which I thought was super cool. I remember being at craft services and David Chase coming over to me and he goes, you know, people in the editing room really think that you're a couple with Michael. And I said, really? And he's like, yeah, you guys have really great chemistry. And I looked at him and I was like, must be the eyebrows. Because <laughs> we both have big eyebrows, you know, joking around. Then um, by episode 12, man, I was sitting on my toilet, sitting on my toilet in the honey wagon. And I was in 12 scenes. And I lost my shit. And I ran to a payphone because that's all we had. And I ran to a payphone with my script. And I called my mom, collect. And I said, mom, you won't believe it. 12 fucking scenes. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> that was a... The see the, the that episode, the music industry stuff, and yeah, that was it. I was on my way to becoming series regular. But I always tell people like I never would have gotten that part if they were auditioning for a series regular because it, you know there were Mira Sorvino, Marissa Tomei, Debbie Mazar, all those girls would have been the perfect actors for those roles. You know what I mean? So I I got really fucking lucky. That you did, Drea. And speaking of getting really lucky, my next guest just happened to audition for what would become one of, if not the biggest improv groups in the country, launching him into a beautiful career. Here he is to tell you all about it, Rob Cordry. You get back to New York. Now, at this point, you're a serious Shakespearean actor. Yeah. And then you get involved with what was at the time this little improv group UCB Upright Citizens Brigade? How did mm-hmm. you how did you discover this group and why, as a serious actor, did you did you pursue wanting to do stuff with them? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I first of all, I mean, I, I realized the one thing I wasn't doing well, the one thing I wasn't taught in college it was just seemed to be a crapshoot was auditioning. Hmm. And so I learned how to audition by, I taught myself by just going out over and over and over again. And I, you know, got my 10,000. I was auditioning for everything in backstage. And Hmm. one of them just happened to be a, a sketch group. You know, I, I, I'd be a performance artist in in (laughs) Berlin right now. If, if, it worked out a different way. I, right. I uh, just happened to be a sketch group. And then, then that, when I got into the sort of comedy scene and, or at least got a view of it, cause we were pretty outside this sketch group, the UCB were just starting to gain prominence. They were just starting to teach classes. They were starting their takeover. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe they had taught one class of students. And I, and I, I thought, I was under the impression that it was Andy Richter's sketch group. Okay. So I went and saw an ASCAT, which is there, was their weekly show. And uh, Andy Richter happened to be performing. So I don't know uh, when I stopped believing it was his. <laughs> but, um, you know, then I got in. I got into a class at the very, it's the only thing I've gotten in on the ground floor of. Okay. You know? When they were the, the the four original UCB guys are still teaching classes in a five story walk up 
ballet studio in in Manhattan. And I just stuck with it. I I, I loved it. I was terrified of it. You know, okay. improv improv still terrifies me to this day. I was doing it for the 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 skill to to learn this skill to be comfortable for confidence and for like you know and also for the community i made a lot of great friends there and Mm -hmm. we then branched out and did other things as you know yeah you 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 said it it terrifies you yeah do you there's no there's no lines brian (laughs) you gotta you gotta make them up i know (laughs) yes and that's terrifying. It's stupid. Shakespeare's got all planned out for you. Right. You just follow the map mm-hmm. and you're going to get and you're going to get there. That's right. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. So I have by the way zero improv training. Uh-huh. And it sounds like much like you, I stayed on the serious theater track longer. But I, you know, so I was doing comedy. I was doing dramatic role. I was doing different stuff. I never did improv. I never. Yeah. Yeah. I never studied it. I didn't take the classes. And I don't know if that maybe for me is why I don't find it as challenging somehow. Oh, yes. That is exactly why. Because you don't, you haven't been in a position where you've had to think about it too much. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like now I, I, I feel like, cause people are saying like, oh, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to improv. Yeah. I don't have, I don't, I, I'm like, no. okay. No, great. that's fine. I also want to set. It's yeah. a little bit more safe, different, right? Yes. Cause it's really just like, you're just trying to find something. And, and also you sometimes go in with a couple things. You got a couple ideas, which don't, you would never do in improv. Don't try to act like, you know, me. Oh, you do. Come I, on, Brian. Everybody knows. You're like, oh, I'm going to improvise this and I'm going <laughs> to improvise that. Uh, but even like oh, going in, you just, that's kind of easy. Like just because you're just playing the scene right. uh, that, that is written. Actually, you're that's just doing a, good, a different version. Yes. Actually, that's a really good point yeah. because I, because it's, it is for me and I do, you know, I, I'm not going to say I write a book on my character or, you know, have a fully developed, you know, history or whatever, but I, I begin to understand who that character is. Mm-hmm. And once you know, if you're given a situation, which is improv, but along with that, given a character who has these certain characteristics, you, it all begins to fill in yeah. much, yeah. much And you easier. know what that the scene sense. is about. You've already yeah. memorized the lines the actual scene. So you know what the scene is about. You know what the game is. Yes. So basically you're just, you're just subbing in things or, or adding jokes that the writers might've missed. Yes. You're just trying to make it a little bit better, you know, and usually it, you know, it's it's not as good, but sometimes it is. When, when you start working with those guys, you also created your own sketch comedy group, the naked babies you spent a couple of years with third rail comedy. I mean, at this point, do you feel like, and this is kind of a weird question, but do you feel like your, your career, your focus is now fully changed to this? Yes. Yeah. Um, I still had, there was still this part of me that wanted that. Well, maybe I'll go back to the theater someday, but, but I'm doing 
comedy now. This is, I have found what I do best. Okay. I have, I have once again lucked into this sort of, uh, uh, I found the end of the maze. But, you know, nowadays, like I was always, I always still harbored a dream that I, I would be on Broadway someday. Okay. Now that it's maybe even a possibility, I could probably, you know, if I right. made myself, you know, really worked at it, I, but I, I don't, boy, oh boy, I would dread that. <laughs> it's, it's so hard. Right. <laughs> Who's got time for Broadway? It's like, it's so much work. It's so much work. It's, <laughs> it's, it, you know, and that was what it was for me. I mean, the, the eight shows a week you have off on Monday. Nobody has Monday off. Like what do you, you know, that the life is, yeah. is very, is very it's difficult. Dismal. Oh my God. 2001, you got what you hoped would be your first big break. This is what I was told a commercial with carrot top. Uh, what do you remember <laughs> about that? Yeah. I, I don't know. It was definitely my first big on, you know, television network commercial. And so by break, I guess it was a break in terms of just cash. Like this thing was going to go out there and I was going to be able to quit my, one of my day jobs and, and live as an actor, actually be an actor and make money at it. So I did this and it was a care. And yeah, I did a uh, 1-800-CALL-ATT commercial. Okay. uh, And then... About a month later, 9-11 happened. So it ran for about a week. 9-11 happened. And they pulled the commercial because in the commercial, Carrot Top hijacks a tour bus in New York. (laughs) No. Yeah. So that went away. Wow. That is quite the coincidence. Rob, but glad to see you made it back. Okay. By the way, I am still trying to find that Carrot Top commercial. My final guest for the day also spent his early days with a mic in hand. Well, maybe it was a hairbrush or a bottle or a broom head. I don't know. It's all the same thing, right? Let's just say he made lip syncing cool long before TikTok. Here's Kevin Pollack with the unconventional way that he got his start in comedy. You started doing stand-up at age 10? Well, sure. Um, First for family, and then eventually at school. Yeah, it was just lip-syncing a comedy album at 10. That that was the act. Okay. What what comedy album? Well, if only he had put in the liner notes of his comedy album that he would go on to be the most prolific serial rapist from show business in history, maybe I wouldn't have chosen that one, but that wasn't in the liner notes, so it was Bill Cosby's first album. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. What was it that attracted you to it, performing in that way? Oh. Um, My mom brought home his first album and i watched my parents laugh uncontrollably listening to the stories coming from the stereo hi-fi which back then was a seven foot wide piece of furniture right compare that to the tiny devices we use now that you hold in your pocket right yeah or just shove into your ears but watching my folks laughing uncontrollably like that it was a first and it was as off-putting or awkward as watching them openly weep. I mean, it really was strange. 
Not that they never laughed. It's just they never laughed at someone talking from the stereo. So when no one was around, I just listened to it a lot more because I wanted to be that person telling the stories, making my parents laugh. Right. I think that was the obsession. And then I would race home after school and listen to it and eventually standing in front of the stereo pretending I was the one telling the stories, not knowing that A, lip syncing was a thing, so I wasn't trying to lip sync. Right. Uh, nor did I think I was inventing lip syncing. I didn't even know the term. I was just playing. I was There was no interactive games. We had just invented fire. This was a while ago, Brian. <laughs> so there I was, and my mother came home and quote unquote caught me. And I used that term because it was as if I was as embarrassed as if she caught me doing something else. So then she laughed, pointed at me and said, you're doing that for the Zookers at Passover. <laughs> so my first live show was, for the Zookers. was on the white painted out fireplace shelving in front of the fireplace, stood on that and performed for 20 relatives at Passover and crushed Brian. I just you killed it. Killed. Well, and I went on to do it at school and other functions, but you know, it was a 10-year-old precocious Jewish kid lip-syncing this hilarious comedy bit. I didn't write the material. I didn't right. even perform it really. I right. I but you know, I cleared my throat the same moment he does on the album and those little things from a 10-year-old. Forget it. Right. So I just killed. I killed constantly. And I did that act I'm going to say for another five years, at every function at school, uh, be it a, a folk festival, a father-daughter dinner dance, you know, whatever the events were, <laughs> there's Kevin and the Noah in the Ark routine. I mean, I was mesmerized by all the comedy albums of the day. And when friends would gather, I would be quoting the album. And, and then I realized, oh, I, I guess I need my own material. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> But I was I was a natural at doing impersonations, and then that became the cornerstone of what I would call an act. At seven, right. at seventeen, is when I performed professionally in a nightclub. Did you did you inherently feel the comedy in the rhythms? Yeah, or in the you felt it. Yeah, and, he, and the Noah and the Ark routine in particular is just Noah talking to God because Noah's confused about how to build the ark, and it's as G-rated as comedy right. gets. And then once I, I think, dialed into the story, I, I organically or involuntarily picked up the comedy rhythms. So I learned timing, timing. from this Jedi master through osmosis. And then I think the impersonations was just a natural thing, but also it taught me how to act. I learned acting nuances from the nuances that I went on to create while doing an impersonation. Okay. Well, talk to me a little bit about that, meaning different people's timing, depending on who you were imitating, yeah. you started to assimilate all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I learned from, from watching actors and then impersonating them. So I would implement what I thought were gestures and nuance and line readings because um, I was speaking finally. Then I learned right. to act on the set of movies. I, I never attended an acting class. I'm not proud of that. I never studied at university. In fact, I graduated from uh, San Jose State University in nine months. My friends called it dropping out, but I was done. <laughs> I was done. 
And, you, uh, you, you finished. Yeah. You I was, finished I, in nine I, months. Uh, there was no ceremony. I didn't need a little hat <laughs> with a tassel. I was done. All right, folks, with that, we're done, too. I hope you've enjoyed today's look back at some of the phenomenal guests we've gotten to hear from this last year. And more importantly, I hope you all have an absolutely perfect and magical holiday. I'm going to be back next week with the second of my best of episodes. But until then, I'll be enjoying some nog, maybe sitting around the Christmas tree, humming a tune and roasting chestnuts. I don't know, but I hope you get to spend some time with your loved ones this holiday season. Happy holidays to you and yours. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Diego Tapia. Our producers are Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan, Papa Zachary, and our intern is Sammy Katz. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by the one and only Creed Bratton. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Zen is America's number one nicotine pouch. It's made with only six simple ingredients. Plus, Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day hassle-free trial. There are lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find yours in online or in a store near you at zen.com find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.